we can certainly see the cost of of poor education uh, when people lose their ability to look at evidence, analyze it, understand that even if you don't like what it says, that you have to you have to deal with the realities of the world. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. In this episode, I'm exploring the story of someone who is known as the father of atomic power, Admiral Hyman Rickover. This was this episode was based on a suggestion from a listener. Thanks, Loki. Uh, Rickover is best known for his role in developing the U.S. nuclear submarine program in the 1950s. His groundbreaking work demonstrates that small modular reactors are a safe and effective method of generating clean carbon-free energy. Today, I'll be interviewing an author who has recently published a biography of Rickover. If you like what you're hearing, please press like on your podcast app and share it with your friends. Also, feel free to join us on the Rational View Facebook group. Mark Wartman received a doctorate in comparative literature from Princeton University. Dr. Wartman is an independent historian and freelance journalist living in New Haven. He's the author of four books on American military and social history. Most recently, Admiral Hyman Rickover, Engineer of Power. As an award-winning freelance journalist, Mark has written for many publications, including Vanity Fair, Smithsonian, Time, Air and Space, and The Daily Beast. He's spoken to audiences around the country and has appeared on CNN, NPR, C-SPAN, Book TV, History Channel, and other broadcast outlets. He's taught at Princeton, Quinnipiac Universities, and a college program at a maximum security prison. He was the recipient of a New York Public Library Research Fellowship and was the 2014 Jalonic Memorial Distinguished Lecturer at the University of Texas, Dallas. Dr. Wortman, welcome to The Rational View. Thank you, Dr. Scott. And uh, can we call each other by our first names? Please, that would be great. Okay. Uh, so thank you, Mark, for, for sending me a copy of your book to, to read, to prepare for this interview. It was really interesting, uh, amazing work. Thank you. Could, could you tell me a bit about yourself and how you became interested in the story of Admiral Rickover? Sure. Uh, well, first, thanks for your interest, uh, and uh, I'm glad to be here with your, uh, your audience, which, uh, like me, uh, cares greatly that... Uh, but scientific viewpoints, rational viewpoints, uh, come first. You know, uh, we've we've tended to uh, uh, discount rationality to an, uh, uh, to our great detriment. And so uh, you're doing a, a great thing here. Thank you. So um, I, uh, as you mentioned, I have a degree in comparative literature, um, and what I'd say is I have a uh, sort of a general humanities, uh, deep humanities background. Uh, I've done a lot of journalism, uh, and uh, I'm uh, only minimally an academic. Um, so, uh, but what I have written are books uh, of narrative histories uh, that uh, that are some biography and character driven um, in military history, uh, American military history. Um, 
And most of my books have, uh, just in the nature of military history, there's uh, a deep involvement with technology. Uh, whether you go back to a book I wrote about uh, the Civil War in which railroads played such an essential role, uh, the American Civil War, um, or uh, another book that I wrote called The Millionaire's Unit about uh, a pioneering squadron of aviators during uh, World War One, who, um, uh, who were uh, using also a brand new technology, uh, uh, little understood, and uh, that ended up uh, transforming uh, you know, American power uh, and world history, of course. Um, and so I was in, uh, in consultation with people, uh, the editors of a series. It's, uh, the book is uh, part of a series called uh, Jewish Lives. Uh, the series is, is um, looks at everybody f uh, in Jewish history, sort of major figures in Jewish history, from uh, King David to um, Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, theologians, uh, scholars, Moshe Dayan, uh, Barbara Streisand, the Marx brothers. Um, and uh, because of my background in, in military history, uh, they, they had an interest in getting something on Admiral Hyman Rickover. Now, I knew some about Rickover. I can't uh, claim to have been uh, an expert in, in what he had done before. Uh, anybody who grew up in, in the 60s and 70s heard his name. He was, at one point, the most famous naval officer in the world. Um, but uh, I didn't know... Really, the this extraordinary story of of his life, and um, and then of course the legacy that we live today. Um, he was uh, a Jew from what's called a shtetl, uh, uh, a uh, Jewish uh, small Jewish town in Poland, in what was then uh, Czarist Poland. He was born just before the turn of the century, um, and emigrated, uh, as did uh, hundreds of thousands of other Jews, uh, to escape anti-Semitism, uh, violence, and poverty, and uh, to freedom in the United States. Came through Ellis Island, lived the, many ways, classic immigrant story. Um, uh, he sought an education, got very lucky. Because uh, there was a, um, he was expected to to uh, at age fourteen to to uh, leave school and uh, work full time to help support his family. He was living in Chicago at the time. He managed to get a job with uh, Western Union. Worked full time at night while he went to uh, high school during the day. Um, and always regretted that he didn't have more time to study. Um, but he did fairly well in high school and then uh, uh, got lucky because there was a tenant in his family's apartment who was on the uh, draft board in World War One, And this was in uh, around 1917, 1918. Uh, and he uh, worked a deal with somebody who wanted to get his son out of the draft 
in return for that person using his influence with the local congressman to get his uh, young Hyman Rickover into the Naval Academy. Um, Hyman Rickover uh, went into the Naval Academy in 1918, uh, you know, uh, had basically not seen the sea since uh, he had uh, traveled in steerage to come to the United States, um, managed uh, to go there, um, and faced you know, uh, significant anti-Semitism. Uh, he hated the Naval Academy. Um, yeah, that's a common theme throughout your book is he's really seemed to be at war with the, the brass, the Navy brass. He hated the hierarchy. Yeah. And yeah. he didn't, he wasn't afraid to show it either. Yeah. And he wasn't afraid to show it. Yeah. Um, he, uh, you know, so this is, this is a guy who on the one hand, was tremendously grateful for the opportunity that the Navy gave him. And on the other, absolutely despised everything that went on in the Navy. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and yet, uh, and as you said, he, he ended up at war with the Navy, a lifetime war. This, at, he started in 1918. He was in the, uh, in the Navy until forced out in 1981. So you're talking about uh, uh, an incredible stretch of time, uh, and uh, you know, f uh, for the guy who is as little likely to become the longest-serving officer in U.S. military history uh, as could be, he seemed—he seemed like he was quite an abrasive fellow, too, for, for, from what yeah. I read. But an extremely hard worker, and and like he was very focused, and and you know, just he didn't spend much time on, on luxuries or social stuff. He was very work focused. Yeah. He was, he was an ascetic guy. He didn't, uh, and an acerbic guy. He, uh, he lived a, a very modest life. Um, uh, he and his wife, uh, lived in an apartment, uh, on, uh, on Connecticut Avenue in Washington, DC. He never learned how to drive. He, uh, uh, once uh, the nuclear program started up, he was basically working seven days a week. Nobody ever outworked Rickover, and he expected everybody who worked for him to work uh, from eight in the morning until six in the evening, uh, six days a week, and often on Sundays. You know, and again, nobody ever outworked him, even at that pace, um, and. You know, he had a, an almost priestly devotion to work. He had, uh, he wrote a lot of, um, uh, he, he had a philosophical side to him. He wrote a lot of essays and speeches where he talked about work and, and simply the love that he felt for work and for having something that was meaningful. Uh, and he was forever grateful to the United States and to even to the U.S. Navy for having given him such a, a purpose in life. Uh, but that purpose was coupled with an incredible uh, hatred for what he saw as uh, irrationality, uh, bureaucracy, um, and uh, simply a lack of intelligence uh, within uh, the Navy and, uh, and the Defense Department. 
uh, which led yeah, he had very little patience for ineptitude. <laughs> yeah, 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 and uh, that impatience um, and and you know even the, his son of a bitchness, if I can coin a phrase there, um, you know, fed into uh, uh, his drive for perfection. You know, so we haven't really talked about what he actually did. So, yeah, so it was a fascinating story. And I had, and before you start, I mean, I hadn't even, I know I, I knew the name Rickover and I, you know, I knew he was associated with the nuclear Navy, but I had never really explored the, the story. So this was very interesting to learn about what he had done and how, and how he got it done. And, and, you know, and, and his ongoing battle with, with just about everybody around him throughout the, the process. So, so go ahead and tell, tell us what, what he accomplished. Yeah. So. Uh, let's talk about a little bit about the history of of uh, nuclear reactors. So prior to World War II, going back to the late 1930s, uh, there uh, there was beginnings of of sense that that you might be able to split the atom, and if you could, you could release a tremendous amount of force. I mean, we're talking you know relative to uh, uh, to a molecule of, uh, of any fossil fuel, whether coal or oil, uh, cracking a single uh, ur uh, uranium isotope uh, nucleus releases many millions fold more energy. You know? um, and th there was this dream that you could, uh, if you could capture that, uh, that release of energy, that you could use it to boil up steam in the same way that you use oil or coal to boil steam to drive a turbine, uh, which could be used to power, well, everything from, uh, from a ship to uh, a, um, uh, a power reactor uh, for, for uh, generating electricity. Um, but the between concept and uh, actually creating a reactor was a tremendous uh, leap. Uh, but there were the beginnings of efforts to do that. And uh, in uh, prior to World War II, there was a discovery that uh, nuclear fission uh, took place if that uh, in a chain reaction, that it didn't just you didn't just break down one nucleus, but that nucleus released energy that hit other nucleuses and caused them to break down. And you could create this reaction of, uh, uh, of, of uh, fission chain reaction that, that uh, could basically create a continuous cycle of, of uh, energy being released. There's tremendous force contained within, within uh, the nucleus. Um, and that immediately created two possibilities. One is an uncontrolled release of energy, uh, which would be a bomb, and then uh, a controlled release of energy, which could potentially be a nuclear reactor. So long uh, prior to World War II, the Navy had actually started some investigations of harnessed uh, uh uh, harnessing nuclear fission with the idea that one day they might be able to turn that into 
uh, an energy source for, for driving its ships or boats. Um, and But along comes World War II, uh, the drive to create uh, the atomic bomb takes over all uh, research efforts in the United States, the Manhattan Project, uh, centered in Oak Ridge and Los Alamos, uh, becomes the, uh, the, the focus of investment and uh, scientific effort. Um, and nuclear reactors that are, were uh, created then, uh, started being created then, um, were all very massive experimental, uh, what were called piles, because they used graphite bricks piled up in these great uh, uh, quasi-pyramids or cylinders uh, in, in, uh, in which they would uh, set off a fission reaction and then study what happened. And primarily this was being used to uh, uh, eventually to generate uh, additional fuel to be used in uh, atomic weapons. So we come out of World War II, of course, with the, the incineration of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the basic concept of, of, a, of chain reaction, nuclear fission chain reaction is uh, a bomb. Uh, and this is a very, of course, a very scary thing. Uh, and this is uh, what predominates in the public mind, as it should. And it also predominated in uh, development efforts in the United States. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, the um, you know all almost all of the investment post World War II was going into uh, the race to build more atomic weapons. The the expectation was as the Cold War uh, unfolded. That, uh, and as did happen, the Soviet Union would get the bomb, and the, U the United States wanted to be well ahead in its arming of itself. Yeah. So you come out of World War II. During World War II, Rickover, actually, uh, who was by then a captain in the U.S. Navy, um, had headed up what was called the electrical section. He was an electrical engineer, by, uh, got training in as an electrical engineer, uh, at Columbia University, which he considered to be his first real education. Uh, we mentioned about his, uh, his unhappiness at, at the Naval Academy. He considered that the education he got there uh, essentially worthless because it was a, a road education. Memorize situations and, and what procedures you would undertake hmm. and prepare for, uh, prepare for ship command. Well, nobody wanted this uh, five foot, six inch, 125 pound uh, Jewish immigrant guy with a, an abrasive personality to be a ship's commander. He, he quickly uh, realized he was never going to get the command that he wanted, uh, adding to his hatred of the Navy. Um, and so he ended up becoming an engineering duty only officer. And during the, the war, headed up the section that was responsible for all electrical systems on ships. And he did brilliantly at it. He created an engineering organization within the Navy, in which he essentially banned uniform, uh, in which he said, uh, you know, the youngest uh, junior officer uh, who knows more about something is uh, more valuable than the highest ranking admiral. Uh, and so he's, 
He banned rank and uniform within his organization. He also set up um, training programs, essentially a flat R&D organization within the most hierarchical uh, institution uh, in perhaps the world, or certainly within the United States. And then he came out of, of World War II essentially not knowing what was next. He, um, and, but he got asked to participate over uh, the objections of many people who disliked him in a Navy effort to understand a little bit more about nuclear reactors. And so he went with a group to Oak Ridge, Tennessee, the headquarters former of, of the Manhattan Project, where there were, uh, of, as I mentioned, a variety of, of uh, experimental nuclear reactors, these massive piles, uh, which the, the idea of sticking, A, the idea of sticking a nuclear uh, reaction inside of uh, a hull seemed crazy. You know, common concept was you're going to blow, you're going to blow stuff up and you're going to uh, uh, shoot out radiation. Uh, you can't possibly stick this into a, a ship. Um, and, and then on top of that, you have these gigantic piles and you need, uh, whether it's a submarine or a ship, you can't weight it down like that. You can't have this massive thing that weighs, uh, so much that it, uh, unbalances, uh, the ship or boat, uh, and makes it impractical as a vessel for, for going underwater or over the surface. Um, and then, of course, you're talking about ships and boats that are in the most treacherous conditions on Earth. You know, you're going uh, deep under the sea under massive uh, pressure. You're going over uh, over the surface of water where waves are, can often hit, uh, be 50 foot high. Uh, you're putting them into combat potentially. And so, you know, uh, so they have to be able to withstand uh, tremendous forces that, uh, and, and even be prepared to be turned completely upside down. You know, so you're, you're, you're talking about conditions that, uh, nobody really thought they'd ever be able to truly develop a pra practical nuclear reactor. Yeah, there, there was, there was no real belief that he would succeed in, in this project, right? And there weren't civilian nuclear reactors at the time that he started this project. There, there were no power reactors out there. There was just bombs and piles and a bunch of physicists at Los Alamos that you know, weren't really going to be engineering anything. Yeah, and then there were, uh, there were, there were uh, you know, nuclear engineers in Ar at Argonne Lab uh, in Chicago who did um, manage to use a, a pile to, uh, to light a, a, few, uh, a few bulbs, uh, electric bulbs, for a few seconds, a few light bulbs. But uh, other than that, uh, there, there was no uh, uh, real uh, belief that you could, uh, you could use a, a nuclear rea reactor to, uh, to harness it for practical energy. So the story was pretty good. Like, how, how did he get... Uh, the budget uh, applied post-war when, when, you know, there was so much debt 
how did he get the budget to do that to run this program post-war without you know uh, it's no longer on a wartime footing why did the U.S. decide to fund this effort? Well, first of all, it was a very small effort to start with. You're talking about nine guys who uh, went to Oak Ridge to study. Um, and he, as, as was Rickover's way, he put himself in charge of them and started, you know, he basically started looking at this stuff and saying, well, what, what can we do to practically build an actual reactor that could be put into a boat? And he wasn't one to uh, mess around with anything impractical or academic. He wanted, uh, he wanted to see, could we actually do this? Now, uh, returning from Oak Ridge, uh, you mentioned budgets. So the Navy basically was in a fight for its very existence, let alone for a budget for, for nuclear power. Uh, the, coming out of the war, you had atomic bombs. What's the use of a Navy in a, a world where militaries would have ato uh, atomic weapons? You know, you, uh, Navy ships uh, couldn't carry those weapons. Uh, aircraft carriers, atomic bombs were too big for, uh, to be transported on an aircraft carrier. Uh, and uh, all of the atomic weaponry was uh, placed under the control of, of the Air Force. And that's where the big budgets were going. So Rickover was actually, uh, after he came back from Oak Ridge, was relegated to a back hallway uh, at, at the Navy's, um, uh, back then the Navy was headquartered around a, in these old buildings. I can remember, I grew up in Washington, D.C. I can remember these buildings. They ran along the reflecting pool uh, which is faces which is between the Lincoln Memorial and the Washington Memorial on the Washington Mall, and there were buildings that lined it. These old uh, uh, decrepit buildings uh, that the Navy was headquartered in, and he was relegated to a back hallway uh, in an office that was carved out of a former lady's restroom. Uh, he never let the Navy or anybody else forget it. Uh, he had um, the the. The toilet fixtures were still in the walls. So, uh, uh, and, you know, in later years, they wanted to give him better quarters and he refused them because he didn't want contractors to think that they could uh, fleece the Navy uh, and make big profits off of them. Uh, and he also didn't want his workers to think that they were something important. He said, you know, what mattered was the work that they were doing. They should be distracted by things like nice desks and fancy carpets. And uh, so he, he, he kept this sort of very spare um, working life going. Um, but uh, as we uh, mentioned, there weren't budgets. Well, coming out of, of uh, World War II, gradually the Cold War heats up. And the Soviets drop a bomb, and they uh, they develop their bomb faster than the United States expected. And they, uh, the thought was, you know, we should be trying to develop everything we can to counter the Soviet threat. And one of the one of the ideas was, okay, could we develop a reactor to put into a submarine? Because if you can, uh, 
let's uh, let's recall what submarines were at that point. You know, uh, submarines were essentially submersible sh- sh- surface ships uh, or boats. They ran on the surface on diesel fuel. Then, if they uh, got into a, a combat situation, they would uh, close their hatches uh, and go underwater, where they would run on batteries that had been charging while they were on the surface. They had these uh, mattress-sized batteries within the boat. Those batteries allowed them to operate underwater at high power for a few hours, uh, at low power maybe for a few days, maximum. Um, And so uh, it's not surprising that the submarine services for all of the uh, forces during World War II on a per capita basis lost more men than any other service branches. Uh, it's very dangerous work. Um, but these submersible boats, uh, in theory, if you had a, a nuclear propulsion, could become effectively underwater satellites. They would not have to uh, resurface uh, or refuel for months on end. And so the, that had the potential to be a, a strategic game changer uh, in the thinking of uh, military experts. So um, the Rickover, because of his abrasive personality, because of his work drive, and because of the knowledge that he picked up in Oak Ridge, uh, was placed in charge of the Navy's effort to develop a practical nuclear reactor. Again, most of the people within the Navy just thought this is never going to happen. This is sort of a way to get Rickover out of our hair. Well, don't give Rickover a bone uh, that he isn't going to chew all the way down. Um, and so they, uh, Rickover wa- uh, uh, got into this unique position. After World War II, the Atomic Energy Commission, what, uh, what was a precursor of today's Department of Energy, was created. It was a civilian branch of government that had charge of all uranium in the United States. And its essential role was controlling uranium uh, and and its use in developing nuclear fuel, whether it was for bombs or any other use. And mainly it was for bombs at that point. At that point, it was almost entirely for bombs. Uh, and, and then they had this uh, small budget that was set up for uh, budget and division that was set up uh, to study uh, uh, nuclear reactors. And Rickover managed to be set up as the Navy officer, Captain Still, in charge of both the Atomic Energy Commission's Division of Nuclear uh, Propulsion and the Navy's uh, Naval Reactors Division. So he had two hats. He was a civilian, uh, controlled the civilian operation, and he controlled this naval operation, all under one roof. It was called called naval reactors. And 
he suddenly had his own fiefdom. And, uh, and he started, uh, with, he started with small budgets, uh, from both the Navy and from, from the Atomic Energy Commission. And he would do things like write himself a note on, uh, from, on Atomic Energy Commission letterhead saying, uh, we're going to budget so much money for the, uh, for the development of a, of a, nuclear reactor for uh, a naval vessel. And uh, we hope that the Navy will match that money. And then he would receive that on the Navy side and he would go over to his uh, the people who controlled his budgets and he would say, hey, it's going to be really embarrassing if the Atomic Energy Commission has budgeted his money and asked the Navy to match it and you're not matching it. And he would basically uh, go back and forth like that. Uh, building up his budgets, um, and he started. He developed a timeline for getting a practical uh, nuclear propelled submarine to sea. And he said, by January 1950, or rather by 1955, we're going to put a nuclear propelled submarine to sea. And that was a relatively short timeline. That was like uh, eight years, I think. Or? Well, you're talking you're talking about from start 1948. You're talking seven years, and from uh, the time they actually got. Um, so you're you, in the Navy. You can't get a, a new uniform approved in seven years. You know, and the idea that you would actually get this entire new propulsion system in a submarine to sea in that time seemed outrageous, impossible. So, uh, and if you think about the things that had to be done to do that, they had to figure it out, figure out uh, the, how to create a, a, within a shielded vessel, you know, within a container uh, that was not so heavy that would uh, make the submarine uh, not buoyant, um, and yet would be sufficiently shield, shielded to protect a hundred plus uh, sailors and officers uh, who are standing within feet. And it had to be so robust to withstand combat situations and high seas. It's it's really you know jumping way ahead in the engineering of 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 nuclear stuff because there just wasn't anything but loose collections of graphite bricks at that point and and chunks of uranium uh enriched uranium so but he was really good at at um doing the politics of 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 keeping his project alive like he was he really knew how to run run the politicians and 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 get keep keep his position uh against uh the navy who were trying to kick him out it seemed like the navy was trying to run him out of town continuously but he had these connections and politics that kept him kind of like a lifeline that, that was quite an interesting part of the story yeah yeah exactly i call my book uh admiral hyman rickover engineer of power uh because it's both forms of power power as uh as energy and power as political power and he knew how to engineer power in washington so as i mentioned first there was that uh his bureaucratic power, you know, both within the Atomic Energy Commission and the Navy. Uh, and uh, 
uh, he effectively uh, had divorced himself from the Navy because he uh, put himself in the position of, um, you know, where once you came into naval reactors, uniforms went out the door. You couldn't, he said, uh, you come to naval reactors, we throw away the, uh, the Navy book of regulations. Um, you know, the Navy would ask him for things like organization charts and he would send back, uh, fill it, fill it out with Chinese characters. Um, he had no interest in anything to do with, with the Navy controlling what he was up to. Uh, admirals came in there and he expected his ensigns to argue with them. His main source of power were his friends on Capitol Hill. So Rickover, uh, during the course of developing the, the first nuclear reactors, he had, uh, he had prototyped uh, the, uh, his first reactor uh, at a, uh, in what you could call a land submarine, a hull that was built uh, inside a, a giant bathtub up in the high deserts of Idaho. And uh, the, in some ways, the Kitty Hawk moment of, uh, of nuclear power came in uh, 1952 when they uh, operated this, this reactor, which drove a propeller and a, uh, or a propeller shaft with a water wheel at the end of it to, to simulate the uh, driving through, through the ocean and ran this thing uh, for a hundred hours at, uh, at almost full power the entire time. You know, there had never been a submarine underwater at full power for a hundred hours in history. And he did this uh, in the high desert. And meanwhile, uh, at uh, um, General Dynamics Electric Boat in, uh, in Connecticut, uh, they were building the hull of what was to be the, called the USS Nautilus, uh, both a, a name that's a, had a long tradition in the U.S. Navy, but also harks back to uh, uh, 20,000 leagues under the sea. Um, and, uh, you know, which was uh, uh, the uh, science fiction vision uh, of, uh, of a submarine that could operate continuously uh, on electrical power from some unnamed source under under the sea. Yeah, that was quite a, an interesting uh, juxtaposition. It kind of came yeah, together. Yeah. Well, and so they would sometimes mock the captain who was designated to be the, the first captain of the Nautilus. They would call him Captain Nemo, um, mockingly. Of course. <laughs> yeah. He, so he was, he seemed to enjoy antagonizing people. Some say that, uh, for, from your book, you're saying that he kind of ruled through fear um, and he would, you know, spout obscenities at people uh, that, you know, for for almost no reason. I love the stories of his officer interview technique. Uh, could you share some of that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Never forget that. You know, Rickover was uh, a tough kid from the streets of Chicago. Uh, this was not. Uh, this was a guy who uh, was self-made, uh, hardball, hard-nosed guy. Um, and he had fought his way to for everything he got. Um, and he was obscene. He could swear up a blue streak. Um, he said the, uh, that the more I like you, the longer I'm with you, the more I'll, the more I'll swear at you, the harder I'll be on you. Um, and that started 
uh, for anybody who got into his system. Uh, it started with his interviews, uh, especially for young naval officers. He would bring them uh, to the um, out of the Naval Academy uh, as young naval officers, and he didn't want experienced naval officers because he didn't trust the Navy. He thought once you've been um, sort of inculcated and indoctrinated into the Navy way, uh, you've been ruined as far as he was concerned. And so he would bring these recently, uh, these senior midshipmen from the Naval Academy, and he also started bringing uh, regular college ROTC, Naval ROTC, Reserve Officer Training Corps, uh, uh, candidates in for interviews. They'd come to his office. They would get there um, from his subordinates, would uh, test them in, uh, in scientific mathematical areas. And then uh, at the end of their, uh, of their uh, day at naval reactors for uh, candidates uh, to become uh, nuclear trained officers, uh, they would come into his office. You're talking uh, after, uh, after he had, uh, we didn't talk about this, but the Naval and the Navy tried to force him out. They tried to retire him, uh, uh, and, uh, and force him out in the midst of creating, uh, the, the, uh, first nuclear vessel. And he enlisted Congress. Congress went after the Navy. Navy was forced to finally forced to promote him. Uh, he became an admiral. So you're talking about these young guys coming into the office of this famous, fierce admiral. And the first thing they do, they'd sit down on this chair and he had cut the front legs off the chair and they would start falling to the floor, sliding off the chair to the floor. And then he'd start peppering them with questions. And he had this unorthodox, highly unorthodox, uh, sometimes abusive way uh, of questioning uh, these young men. He'd, he'd ask him until he was finally forced to stop. He'd, he'd ask him about their sex lives. He'd ask me to ask him, uh, define religion. Uh, tell me what the last 10 books you read were and what, uh, what was valuable in them. And he would pepper them with these questions. And then he would uh, try to get uh, them to answer as quickly as they could. He wanted short, direct answers. He didn't want, uh, as he, uh, as we've made very clear to them, any BS. And then if they tried to uh, mislead him, if they tried to, uh, if they didn't answer the question in the way that he thought was right, he would banish them to a broom closet. He would send them off <laughs> to go sit and stew in a broom closet with mops and buckets and and um, and cleaners and sit there for an hour or two. And then he'd call them back in. And they'd have to answer that question. If they didn't answer the question the way he wanted, he'd banish them again. Um, for some, this, this interview process had an extraordinarily valuable effect on their lives uh, because it forced them to think. It, forced, it put them on edge. Uh, it, he was looking for people who could react in high, under a high-pressure situation without becoming flustered. Uh, who could think clearly, quickly, rationally, uh, and uh, and respond in a command situation uh, in in uh, without losing their cool, uh, or if they did lose their cool, 
uh, do it in a way that made sense. Uh, because these were people who were going to be put in charge of nuclear reactors. And these were his babies. And these nuclear reactors, he expected to be able to operate under all kinds of conditions. And there were always going to be incidents. There were going to be things that go wrong. How do you react? Do you know how to react and get through this? So some would be banished to the closet and hated. They would think this is the most degrading thing that's ever happened to me. They'd hate the admiral. He didn't care if they hated him. And uh, they'd want nothing more to do with it, uh, with, with the nuclear navy. But most of these young men, they wanted to get into the nuclear navy because they knew this was the future of the service and they wanted to be part of it. Uh, one of those who reacted well was Jimmy Carter, a young, uh, a young officer, a brilliant, uh, brilliant officer who'd done very well at the Naval Academy. Rickover said to him, uh, asked him, did you always do your best at the Academy? This was after they had discussed opera. They discussed uh, their, his favorite books. Um, and uh, Carter reflected about that. And then he, and then he had to honestly answer, because you know, he had been in among the top graduates at the Naval Academy. And he said, no, I hadn't. You know, Carter was a very earnest man. Um, and Rickover looked at him and said, why not? And then he turned his back on him. Uh, and Carter realized after uh, a little bit that that was the end of the interview. He walked out. Um, Carter ended up writing his campaign autobiography when he ran for president uh, and titled it, Why Not the Best? Uh, because of this, uh, of this encounter with Rickover. And he said that Rickover, other than his father, was the most influential man on his life. And, uh, uh, and they ended up, when Carter was in the White House, having a very close relationship. This, you know, this Jew from Russian Poland uh, was welcomed in the White House. Uh, and, and it's sort of an unbelievable uh, trajectory for, uh, for... He's small of stature, but legendary for his presence and his anecdotes or... or... Or, yeah, he's quite uh, bigger than life. And so I didn't realize the extent of the impact of his naval reactor program on the civilian nuclear program until I read your book. Uh, his group was basically the first to do the metallurgy and the, the chemistry of, of uranium. And, and, you know, he they came up with the Zerk alloy coating of the fuel that's used in all of the world's reactors now. Yeah, the pressurized water reactor which is, you know, remains uh, the standard. You know, when, you, when they started, they didn't know what, what is the best uh, coolant, uh, circulating coolant for this. Uh, you know, there was a thought, hey, let's molten salt, uh, mercury, uh, a gas. Uh, and, and he was the one who realized pressurized water uh, uh, was, was by far the best system, even though it didn't necessarily heat up to the level that you could with something like molten salt. It was much safer. Uh, water is everywhere. Uh, you, could, uh, you could shut it down very rapidly. Um, and as you mentioned, with alloys, when Rickover started, there was uh, about uh, um, a shoebox full of uh, refined zirconium in the world. And it cost back then, back in, in uh, 
in the early 1950s, it cost $3,000 a pound for it. And he needed wow. tons. He needed tons. And he created an entire zirconium industry, drove the price down to $5 a pound. You know, and now zirconium, you know, we have all these little bracelets and whatever that people wear. You know, the alloys of zirconium are still used in nuclear reactors. So he took the designs for a large ship reactor uh, with the idea that they were going to be uh, creating a, a reactor that would be large enough to uh, power a, a large surface ship uh, and uh, took that and he was tasked by the um, uh, Atomic Energy Commission to develop a reactor for civilian use. Um, and in 1957, the first uh, fully civilian atomic uh, utility plant uh, uh, went online above Pittsburgh in a place called Shipping Port, uh, developed by Rickover. And this was um, became... Uh, under Eisenhower's Adams for Peace program, the uh, the university for the development of the civilian nuclear power industry, and uh, even the Soviets were invited in to see how it was done, um, and this spread uh, basically the gospel of nuclear energy. Uh, Rickover would have liked. To retain control of nuclear uh, civilian nuclear power industry, uh, but uh, quite deliberately they kept him out of it. They didn't want uh, uh, military control uh, over a, a civilian industry. Um, the fact that Rickover and uh, did not get control uh, led him to fear. He always feared uh, the profit motive. And thought, you know, we're going to get people who are more concerned about keeping their costs down than they are about safety. And in the end, he was right. He was right. And you notice that since Three Mile Island, there has been no significant uh, radiation release in the U.S. nuclear power industry. And that's in part because after Three Mile Island, they brought in Rickover's uh, uh, naval reactors and asked them to consult on uh, methods uh, and operations. And they then created industry boards uh, that were fully staffed. The entire staff came from uh, former uh, nuclear, naval nuclear officers, and they started instituting the kinds of training uh, controls, inspections, continuous cons uh, training, uh, and uh, and systematically uh, set up the the same sets of of conditions that have allowed the Navy, after sixty years of operations, more than sixty years of operations of nuclear vessels. Uh, uh, probably on the order of 10,000 years of naval vessel operation uh, over millions, hundreds of millions of miles at sea, that there has never been a single nuclear incident involving a U.S. vessel.
you know, which is can be traced to these methods that were put in place by Admiral Hyman Rickover. Uh, I've spoken to any number of of uh, naval officers, uh, including uh, the, uh, John Richardson, the uh, former ch- chief of naval operations, who became chief of naval operations from uh, under President Obama uh, after he had been uh, the head of naval reactors. You know, and basically, it's it's Rickover's legacy. It's Rickover's legacy. It's uh, permeates. Naval reactors permeates the Navy now. Uh, we haven't talked about the reforms that he forced on naval education. Uh, he took the Naval Academy that he hated and forced it to become a major engineering center. You know, today we think of the Naval Academy as kind of an MIT uh, uh, on uh, for the Navy. You know, and... That's because Rickover forced through curriculum reforms so that he could get officers that he wanted for the nuclear Navy. And his fight for higher science and math standards and and training of nuclear Navy officers even spilled over into educational reforms for the whole country that he was pushing. Like, did he have an impact on the educational standards at large? Absolutely. Yeah. So Rickover, during his career, you know, as busy as he was, uh, often uh, working together with his wife, uh, we haven't talked about her. He was, they were really partners. Uh, she was a, a brilliant woman. Uh, he said the smartest person he'd ever met. Um, they, uh, he wrote, uh, I think it was three or four books about education. They were often a little bit over the top. He would claim that, uh, that he had studied, uh, you know, Russian education closely. That he had visited Russian cat classrooms. He he did go to Russia uh, in in the company of then Vice President Richard Nixon, um, but uh, he probably didn't see a single classroom. But he nonetheless uh, actually right rightly claimed that the Soviets were uh, were getting ahead of the United States in technology because of their focus on STEM education. Um, and their and their insistence upon standards. Um, so uh, Rickover uh, advocated the establishment of national standards for education, um, and uh, pushed hard for STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics education, uh, and wanted to see much greater centralization of of standards, uh, and that eventually led. Um, uh, helped to lead, because there were, of course, other people working down these lines, um, to the creation of what became the Department of Education. Uh, Jimmy Carter uh, created the Department of Education. Uh, again, somebody who came out of the nuclear, uh, naval nuclear uh, propulsion training, uh, and of course, a, a real acolyte of Rickovers. So, yeah, he had a, he had a big impact on uh, public education in the United States um, uh, that, uh, you know, he'd say things like, you know, to be undereducated in a trigger-happy world is to invite catastrophe. Um, and, and uh, you know, we can, we can certainly see the cost of, of poor education uh, when people lose their ability to look at evidence, analyze it, understand that even if you don't like 
what it says that you have to you have to deal with the realities of the world and uh we we have many irrational people who uh, are foisting their views on others and we don't have enough people who have uh the ability to look and question and explore uh so that they can come up with with rational truths and accept those rational truths you're preaching to the choir here <laughs> yeah yeah i understand but hopefully hopefully that message gets uh spread to others yeah no this this is good this, it was it's quite uh, interesting to see all all the stuff that he was responsible for you just he, he was driven uh and it seems like he never slept uh re- listen you know he inspected every ship he was he had a team of inspectors that would go around his quality control stuff i, I work in the space agent industry um you can see a lot of the quality control stuff that he brought on to bring these uh, nuclear reactors uh and you know keep their safety standards up you can see a lot of that stuff and how we build space instruments uh the you know the, the quality inspections the on-site uh he, he sent his team on site to the contractors to ensure that the standards were were kept up no corners were cut he was very hands-on and micromanaging every aspect of the of the delivery to get these these things and his first basically his first prototypes of the nautilus was was basically a, a fully functioning system that worked right out of the box uh amazingly and it kind of had to or else the program would have been shelved i think so so that that focus uh and determination was 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 you know basically built the nuclear industry that we have today so we're getting towards the end of our, our time slot here one thing i wanted to touch on you quoted him as saying that the nuclear navy was a necessary evil uh and he was actually in favor of nuclear disarmament uh, and i think that he said something like you know he said you could just sink them all if if you could get rid of nuclear entirely is it can you expand well, on that so this was um you know at at the end of his career and um you know uh he was finally forced out in in 1981 by um uh, President Ronald Reagan, um, who uh, I think sort of sadly unleashed some of the uh, irrationality that that uh, plagues uh, the United States, um, but uh, Reagan, um, I'm sorry, uh, Rickover, um, at, at the end he would he would regularly testify throughout his career. He was vi- invited up to Capitol Hill to testify, and he was he was asked to to basically speak about anything that interested him. You know, there was a lot of, of course, they wanted to focus primarily on the on the Navy and the nuclear Navy, but uh, he would expound on uh, philosophy, uh, his philosophy in, in various areas. Um, and in his last testimony, he, he did say, um, if I could, I would sink them all. Uh, and he, he said, you know, the Navy asked me to do a job, and I did, um, uh, to the best of my abilities. Um, the his his basic notion was that nuclear energy uh, was a Pandora's box. Um, he said that all the way back in the 1920s when he first heard about it, um, uh, or I should say, it was in the 19 or 1930s. 
Um, and he, he understood this is, this is a dangerous power. It's a dangerous power in the hands of people who sometimes don't know how to handle this dangerous power. And if were we in a world in which nuclear energy disappeared, we would be better off for it. But you're talking about uh, something that that can't happen. This is the kernel of this is the kernel of the universe, and so for him to say that in 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 many ways to, was to say, uh, I wish we lived in a better, safer world in which nobody had the opportunity to exploit nuclear energy. And this was in, you know, the height of the Cold War when uh, the 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 major powers had their um, mutual assured destruction um, philosophy of, you know, if anyone fires, we'll dis destroy the world, um, and that obviously kind of flavored everything about nuclear at the time, and there was huge protests and disarmament marches and, and the whole thing. Well, and you know. When we hear uh, Putin threaten to uh, use nuclear arms uh, as a response to um, you know uh, the West NATO's involvement in the war in Ukraine, um, well, this is is uh, a really truly evil thing to say. Um, Ultimately, it's bluster because he understands uh, at this very moment there are 30 plus nuclear submarines somewhere out in the ocean. And those many of those nuclear submarines carry uh, ballistic missiles uh, with nuclear warheads. And that as soon as he moved toward uh, uh, any kind of use of nuclear weapons, uh, that it would be suicide. So that, that reign of, uh, of mutually assured destruction, uh, uh, it's an, something awful to contemplate. It still continues. Um, and yes, we'd like to put the, uh, put it back in the box if it were possible. Uh, it's tragedy of the world that it is not possible at this point. Uh, let's hope one day uh, humanity uh, uh, comes to its senses and figures out how to eliminate nuclear weapons. But for now, that's uh, that protects us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yeah, that, that's that's definitely a, a horrible quandary that humanity has gotten itself into uh, in this situation. So. I think uh, I'm just going to have to say thank you for, for discussing this with me uh, and sharing this story with our listeners. Uh, really interesting uh, about, you know, this is basically one man's Apollo program. This, this guy basically did the Apollo program for, you know, what Apollo program did for space, he did for nuclear, I think is, is what I get from this. And it's, it's really an amazing story. So thank you for, for sharing your work with us. Yeah, thank you.
Um, if people want to find out more about uh, Rick Over, my book, uh, or any of my other works, they should go to my website, uh, markwortmanbooks.com. It's M-A-R-C-W-O-R-T-M-A-N books.com. Thank you for, for joining us on The Rational View. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed talking with you. I'm going to fire off a, a T-shirt for you for, for coming on and spending your time and, and cool. discussing this. Cool. I will, I will wear it proudly. Excellent. Thank you. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patron.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.